Doug was practically climbing off his chair. It was kind of shaky stuff. I'm like trying to ride and trying to shoot. <laughs> what I had been missing all my life. I just lost my train of thought. This this is this is this is one of the top questions on my list for the main podcast. Mike, I can't believe that Mark chucking his hat across the room brought back whatever you're trying to think about. Alright, drum roll please. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, we have all four co-hosts together, bringing you an exciting episode. We have Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, Doug Gardner, and myself, Mark Raycroft. Let's, let's catch up a bit, guys. What's going on, Michael? How's it in Denver? Pretty nice, a little chilly. I guess it is winter, so it should be a little bit chilly. Um, whoa, Ron- whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, winter. It was hot there like two podcasts ago. I know, man. It just seemed like it was hot, 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 and then went right to cold. You've got snow in Denver. No. No snow. No snow. It doesn't snow. All right, now I'm Denver. confused. Mixed messages. It's just cold. We get the Arctic cold blast, but we don't get any snow with it. If you go to the mountains, they got 20, 30 inches a weekend that they're getting dropped on, but okay, we're just not getting it. You know, Ron was here this weekend, and we were hoping to film some deer stuff, and, you know, he just didn't have the weather for it. It was pretty warm in the middle of the day, and then cold, cold, cold at night, and it just wasn't, the, you know, the animals would shut down real early. I loved what you guys were doing. I saw your story on Instagram. You added them on on the bikes. Right. The three of you with Heath, your son, Ron, yep. cycling with the gear, looking. That was that was cool. Heath. Heath tried to take Mike on in a bicycle race and ah, ah, okay. lost badly. I warned him. <laughs> he had to buy dinner. <laughs> and it was all his idea. It was. Yeah. So y'all how were y'all successful at all with the deer or just no? It was just it was a bomb. We had a we had a couple opportunities that, that panned out. Um the sheep ride was kind of a bomb. There the sheep are still way high. It was just, I, I think it was just too warm. I don't know. But the other thing that, you know, that we talked about is the potential that there was a cat in the canyon. And, you know, that canyon's so tight. If there was a cat down there, it wouldn't it wouldn't take much pressure at all for him to push That'll the sheep up to the top. So yep. that was obviously speculation on our part because there was there was sign on the on the trail, on the path. But. The only sheep we saw was a what yearling ram and a and a ewe. That was it. But we did stop and talk yeah. to some of the volunteers that work in that canyon. I, I didn't even last time I was there. There were no volunteers. It, it it's changing, right? Because everything around Denver, the population is getting so big that everything gets tons of visitors, right? Especially on weekends. So I think the Division of Wildlife or the Colorado Parks and Wildlife has probably decided it's a good thing to have volunteers up there to help educate. Because a lot of times you go up there and the sheep are right there off the side of the path. So, you know, and and there was a sign, and I should have taken a picture of it when we started up the canyon. That, so there's a sign there that says, what did it say, Ron? This is bighorn sheep rutting season. Be very, very careful, you know, and they're just warning people about it. So, you know, the sheep are there, but we didn't see any. But we did get a chance to talk to one of the volunteers, and that was kind of cool because... They had said that there's 250 sheep in that canyon. 
I have never seen that many sheep. You know, the most we used to see would be 20 or 30 at a time, which is cool. That's all you need. But this time we saw two, and then we didn't see any others. But if there's 250 in that herd, man. But, you know, that path goes for seven or eight miles. What's cool about it is you can take a bike. You can either walk or take a bike. Okay. And so That's what I was going to ask. So it's accessible by bike. Was it a hard cycle? I mean, are they talking serious topography here? It sounds like it. If there's a canyon, or is it just navigate through the canyon on a twisty, cool trail and you coast along? Yeah, it's a twisty, cool trail to kind of just cruise along. It's not hard okay. at all. I mean, it's uphill the whole way because you're following a river, but, you know, it's not a drastic uphill at all. And then downhill's a blast. I mean, you don't have to do anything. In fact, I told Ron when we were coming down, I was like, let's go as slow as we can down because you don't have to pedal, but then you can look up and just see. And, you know, it's brown. I think we do need snow. The snow would drive the sheep down for yeah. sure. It's like what you had last week, Doug. Yeah. You yep. just don't get yep. it. But, you know, that's been the last 10 years in Denver is there's not a lot of snow. So I suppose the sheep can stay up as high as they want, provided there's water up there. I don't know how much water is up in that canyon. Up on the, you know, there's probably bound to be some springs and things. So... When we used to photograph them on a regular basis down in the bottom of the canyon, they would always come down and get water, you know, or the snow would drive them down. So mm. who knows? I mean, I, I was pretty sure we were definitely going to see some sheep, and I was bummed that we only saw two. And the two that we saw, we passed. I was like, oh, cool. If there's two here, there's going to be a bigger herd up ahead, and we kept riding and kept riding. Then when we decided to turn around to come back to at least get shots of those two, they were gone. Yeah, they're tough, man. They're tough. They really are. And it's so weather dependent. It's not even funny. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just like you said, all about deep snow. Once those groceries get covered up with snow, they got to come down. Yeah. But it was cool to talk to the volunteers to try to just get a handle on, you know, because I had the experience that I had, but I hadn't been there in, I would say, 10 years. You know, I just no, figured. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't been going up there at all. I think Missy and I drove up there just for exercise on bikes a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw a few sheep, but I didn't even take a camera because that was more into like January. So we were just doing it just to get out, you know, and that wouldn't be a good time to, I guess you could still film the sheep, but you wouldn't get that running activity. So mm-hmm. anyhow, Ron got to see some new country and we had a little bit of luck with some big deer, but that was about it. Then like two, three weeks ago when the rut was really on for the deer, it was, mm-hmm. it was night and day different. Okay. Well, good on you for getting out. It looked like you had fun on the cycle anyway. It's a nice country to ride through from what I saw on Instagram. Yeah, I wish I had taken my Osmo. I'm just like, it was kind of shaky stuff. I'm like trying to ride and trying <laughs> to shoot and I'm, you know, trying to get Heath Ron's son to do some viral video action and he wasn't having any of it. I kept trying no, to I... get him to ride off into the river or do something <laughs> that would provide for, you know, good content. But jumped into a tree. We tried everything. Speaking, speaking of the Osmo, I mean, not to go too far off track, but what about the pocket, the GGI pocket that's just coming out? Oh, I mean, there you go. Yeah. Now, the Osmo, you've got to carry in your pack because it's this big tool, right? But the pocket is smaller, and you could have it anywhere on you and just mid, mid-pedal, mid just pop it out and do that. I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm thinking about it. I'm going to start a swear jar for intrigued, by the way, too. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've, I've not done any research on it. it. Have you guys? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, 4K 60, 
that was the first thing that got my attention and it's literally two buttons to operate. Um, you know, the thing I've used, I don't own an Osmo, but I have used one a lot. Uh, the BBCs, I've also used yours, Mike. And, uh, when we, you and I were in Alaska on the boat, remember, right. and it's always, it's so darn fidgety to make that stupid thing work. It is not reliable. Um, it not reliable at all. And, you know, it, it, Every time you pull it out, it takes, you don't know, you might be screwing with it for 30 minutes before you get the thing to work or sync or not sync or whatever. So, yeah, I, I'm real intrigued by the by the pocket. Um, now, it's not something you want to probably do a large percentage of content on for, in one project, you know, but um, because, I mean, it's, certainly it can't possibly have the data information to to really hold up to heavy grading and all that so you don't want to use it a lot in one project but i think for what for what it's meant to do you know short uses i think it'd be fantastic uh looks amazing i don't see i haven't been able to put my finger on whether exposures and stuff are even um adjustable on that thing other than ISO. Sure, either. There's some. There was some question on that. Hopefully, it's very accurate for most applications, most yeah. general light. The Osmo. I don't. You were probably using the Osmo One. So I just want to state the Osmo Two is not probably. bad. Yeah, I've been using that the one. this year. Yeah. And it's the Osmo Mobile Two, but it is not perfect. I have had when Michael and I were in Alaska in July, there were times where I started filming and it just decided to go and capture something else over here. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, we're looking this way. It's like, no. Or I'd be in the middle of doing a monologue, and it would just drop. Woo, we're done. <laughs> but that was a small percentage of the time. So right. it wasn't perfect, but it wasn't bad, and with a little bit of patience. And it wasn't hard to learn either. But I'm excited about this just because it fits in the old pocket protector, right? Yeah. And we can use it a lot more readily. You know, when you have tools that are easy to deploy, you tend to use them more. And you tend to, when you have things readily available, you capture stuff that you normally wouldn't have the time to set up and capture, you know, right. otherwise. So. Yeah, so, I'm wondering if those, not to keep going on this, but we had the, I had the first DJI drone. And then now I've got one of the more recent copies. And it's night and day different from that first one to that last one. We also had the Ronin 1 big gimbal setup. And then we have the Ronin 2, and it's night and day different. So hopefully they're just, each version is going to get better and better and better. But dead on with you, Doug, I actually put my Osmo Pro, and I think I paid like 1900 bucks or 1700 bucks for that thing. I just put it up for sale today because I don't ever use it just because it does work. And when it works, it's great. But when it works. It's just the time to get it set up and the frustration and, you know, the way yep. we all operate. It's not like we have all day to troubleshoot a piece of equipment. I mean, you oh. and I were shooting for a TV show and we had limited time with that man in the boat. And we're sitting there dinking around with the stupid camera trying to wonder why it won't sink. And this guy's driving around in circles for us, waiting for us to, you know, do something. So, yeah, it was frustrating. Well, but anywho. This new pocket is also more budget friendly at 350 US, is what yeah. they're bringing it out as. So it'll be fun to experiment with. At least one of us will have to pick it up and try it and tell, tell the rest of the team and the rest of our listeners whether to sign on or not. For the Instagram cool. stuff, it'd be fine. Oh, yeah. clearly. Yeah. So it kind of leads into this week's 
show, but I don't want to quite announce that because I haven't heard from Ron what's going on in Wyoming or Doug what's going on in in SC. So that's not Southern Cali, that's South Carolina. South Carolina. Well, winter's here. It's feeling wonderful. It's, uh, you know, it's an exciting time of year because you actually feel like getting out and doing something. And so, um, so yeah, so I'm, um, things are getting real busy this month. Uh, a lot of waterfowl projects coming up uh, next week, doing some a shoot for DU in uh, Alabama. And uh, they got a new waterfowl easement project going on out there. I'm going to go shoot that. And uh, I've been working on trying to get uh, some of my favorite shooting spots in the cypress swamps around here scouted out for waterfowl and all that's looking really good. The biggest problem, I actually went in there yesterday to try to do a little filming, a place that I know there's a lot of ducks. Just historically, they're always there. And the wind had blown all the cypress needles that had turned red and dropped, uh, blown them all down into the water. And so it was just this mat of cypress needles across the water and it just looked like hell so i just packed it up and turned around and left so i'm just i'm just waiting for you know some rain and some wind to blow it all out of there and kind of clear the water up so uh that's where it goes though. but yeah a lot of things going on right now mostly waterfowl related so my time of year right on ron wyoming it is it's definitely starting to act like winter uh, it's cooled off as i drove back from colorado yesterday um we got about halfway home i suppose and the whole interstate was a sheet ice so it turned into a little bit longer trip i uh, didn't expect that to happen fortunately with the modern uh, alert systems that are in place you get that warning ahead of time and you don't just drive onto it so uh we've got just went down again shot with mike and gave that a, a try I think we're going to go try to find some sheep up in northwest Wyoming this weekend. So we'll we'll give that a try. I know I know the sheep are down there, so uh, we will have some success. It's just a matter of what all what all we find and what kind of situation we find them in. To follow up on last week, I have to ask: any luck with the mountain lions? Still there? Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I went out, and this I just found out today. I went out last week, late last week and didn't see her, did see some tracks in the snow, so still some evidence that there was some activity. And then I just got a call from the same guy that told me about her, and she's definitely still there. He uh, he thinks he might have an angle where he could maybe get a get a look at them, but he's cool. he said they're tough, too, with all that sure. mountain mahogany. So. All right. Well, good luck. Let's see. It's uh, it's editing season here in Ontario. The shorter day length, the duller days. When I get an opportunity to go out, I still go. Some snow flurries in the air and such, but for the most part, I've been at the desk. Nothing super cool to report here, except I am buried with all the fun we had this fall on all our trips with editing. So I'm excited to get into that and prep some of that to get out to the world share. Yeah. So why don't you, for uh, just for our listeners, I mean, yeah. so let's say you shoot all summer long like you do, right? How long does that edit take? Are you got? Do you have two uh, months worth of work? Do you have three months worth of work? Do you have? You're gonna make fun of me when I answer this question. Now I'm gonna be lucky to be finished by spring. Working hard. Yeah, we dive into it, and it's all winter long. It's shooting a lot. It's marketing too, because and writing. I've read quite a few articles. So these various projects, you know, 
take the time and focus away. And when I get a body of work, if I edit one trip and I want to promote that, then that'll take a few days to start putting that out to the people I want to see it. And uh, yeah, but it's a long, yeah, winter's a long haul that way. But it, it's it's a different speed, right? So I don't. For sure. By spring, I'm, I'm tired of the editing, but autumn is nonstop. So I have very little opportunity to, to prep the images to put them out. The highlight reel ones I tend to just to keep as much uh, promotional material as I can. Uh, Business-wise, I've always found it very smart to monthly connect with my clients, uh, my editors, my publishers, the people that I'm friends with and work with, just because I know how busy everybody is. So I'll send my best images and say, hey, this is what I've done recently. And it's, it's quite helpful to keep the sales going that way too. That's the season. I look forward to that because I get out of touch with all these people because I'm traveling so much. I don't have connection in places and I'm just building this next year's portfolio. Yep. So it's kind of a fun time of year. So December is a mix, right? You all this, it's family time coming up, some holidays and stuff. But it, the editing is a big part of that to start getting into that and crack that nut. Yeah, I brought it up just because I was last year. We went, you know, we were starting this podcast last year about this time, right? Mm hmm. You know, and we did several before, several that then people will never hear that we were just practicing on. And we constantly talked about your editing and every day you were editing. And it's like, you just know you put in a ton of hours just to prepare those images from all the shoots that you right. do all your, uh, the rest of the year. Right. And that's part of the fun of digital, right? We built, we build such a library on these trips and it's just getting the best images out of it and then tweaking them in some ways with color and contrast and, and just make it work. But today, in today's podcast, I'm here to learn. I'm excited about this with you guys. Because, you know, my forte is animal behavior. I think that's, that's so important to successful wildlife photography. And I know the gear that I use. But video has intrigued me all the way along. I've dabbled in it, and I'll, I'll explain that in a moment, but what I've done in it. But today I get to quiz you guys. <laughs> on your success in video and I have questions because of how quickly things are changing and what the potential could be for these various levels of cameras and we touched on this on a previous podcast and it just blossomed right away I, mean, I don't even know if we, we might have stopped recording and we start and it was just whoa there's a lot of content here and I think I know I can learn as far as what the applications and capabilities are of these cameras and our listeners I think will get a lot out of what you guys can offer today as well. But before we launch into that, I want to take a moment and just ask all of you to please take the time to follow along and subscribe, no matter what platform you're listening to us on, and to give us a positive review, a thumbs up, or a five-star rating, as that helps us to do what we'd love to do and to bring you these podcasts on a regular basis. So jumping into one of our new segments, we have two segments before we'll start the main section of the podcast. We all are going to bring our weekly pro tip. So Doug was practically climbing off his chair saying he had so many ready. So we're going to start with Doug this week. Fire away, buddy. All right. Drum roll, please. My pro tip this week is video related because we're going to be talking about video. So my tip is, uh, has to do with, um, it's actually one and the same. It's uh, tripod stability and perspective. So as a general rule, I always try to set up my tripod so that the video camera is eye level or lower than 
my subject's eyes. That puts me on a more intimate level. It, 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 it makes the viewer feel as if they are another similar animal in a group, in a herd. So you kind of put you right there into, into what's going on. The other thing about being low is that with video, you need to be as stable as possible. So the, the shorter you have those legs, the lower you are to the ground, the more stable the tripod is going to be because the legs are going to be wider and shorter. The other thing, too, is when you get up high, you start picking up a lot of wind buffering against your camera, and that just translates to shake. And uh, the number one killer of video is shaky footage. So stay low. You know, you'll keep the, the vibration down. And it'll look, uh, it'll look a lot better just because your perspective is, is um, a more intimate angle to what you're uh, trying to film. Awesome. Brilliant. I like it. Absolutely. Did you expect anything less? No, I didn't. <laughs> All right, Michael, you're up, buddy. So mine is uh, video related as well. And I got to thinking, a lot of people ask me about what to shoot on. Because I think a lot of people are out there shooting these DSLRs to shoot video. And basically, they just go from whatever setting that they would be shooting stills at, and then they would just roll off some video, right? Mm-hmm. And you really don't want to do that. What you want to do is all your cameras have settings, so you can choose what frame, what you're, what you're going to shoot it at. Are you going to shoot it at 30 frames a second? Are you going to shoot it at 24 frames a second? Are you going to shoot it at 60 frames a second? And if you are, the rule of thumb is, is you want to be, your shutter speed should be double that. So if you're going to shoot, let's say, 30 frames a second, you want your shutter speed to be set at a 60th. Well, if you're out on a bright, sunny day, and you have to shoot at a 60th, then you're going to run your aperture. I mean, on a bright sunny day, your aperture is going to be f16, f22. Who knows what it's going to be, right? You don't want to do that with video. Number one, it's everything's going to be in focus. And number two, you... I just lost my train of thought. This This is... <laughs> This is this is one of the top questions on my list for the main podcast. Oh, good, good. Well, we can go back into it. But you, oh, the the second thing. So number two, what you what happens on a DSLR is you start picking up spots. So if your sensor is dusty at all, that DSLR is going to show all that dust, right? So if you're at f twenty two, you're going to see every speck of dust, especially if you're shooting a sky scene or clouds. If you're shooting in the trees, a lot of times you can get away with it. But if you're, depending on how big that dust is, it's really going to show up. So what you want to do is you want to use neutral density to knock it down. So there's no easy way to go between stills and video. You really have to commit to one or the other and then have to set up your camera with that neutral density on the camera before you go out and start shooting. And one of the popular ways to do it is to use a variable neutral density and that is just a filter that allows it to twist and you can get different stops. You can be able to, to get like two or three stops cut from the, the camera itself so that it, you can bring your aperture down to 5.6 or f4. That also presents its own problems. But since that's one of your questions later, why don't we just talk about that later? But that's the deal. You know, neutral density, just make sure you're using that. All right, get the neutral density density dialed in for videos. 
Yeah, those settings are so important for a DSLR, and that's one of the things about this week's podcast that I personally am looking forward to learning because with the D850 that I'm using, I want to experiment with that 4K capability. I, and I, I want to ask to you, you know, how broad an application will it work for? But at the same time, what are the best settings? And we'll get into that shortly. Ron, take us to your pro tip. So if we're going to do the countdown, number one, Mike, I can't believe that Mark chucking his hat across the room brought back whatever you're trying to think about. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two, we've touched on it a lot, and everybody, I think everybody has a little bit something different in mind when you talk about uh, working an animal or working a situation. And I know, you know, Mark's touched a little bit on coming from his perspective of, you know, shooting for periodicals. Uh, shooting for stories you want to get every different type of shot you can get as long as you've got that animal there you know to to continue to work with it and so the the pro tip would be change your angles change your perspective put the animal in a different position in the in the frame change your composition but then start thinking about you know from an editor's standpoint you know, we had we had a good situation, and I had my son there, so this is fresh on my mind because I'm kind of talking him through this the same thought process that he needs to have. So you want your calendar shot, so to speak, or your postcard shot. You want your, you know, you want that animal to be able to look into the frame, that kind of thing. But if you've got an animal that's isolated, also think about giving them a, a clean edge. So if you've got an animal that's all the way buried to the left side of the frame as far as your composition and your right side of the frame or right half of the frame is open, that's a perfect opportunity for a double page bleed for a periodical. So they can they can put all their editorial information on one side. You've got the animal on the other side. You know, so start thinking about these things. And then to add on top of that, you know, and Mike just touched on how difficult it is to switch back and forth on your DSLR between video and uh and stills but don't be afraid to even your your phone i uh there was a situation when we were in alaska and these these two bull moose were kind of sparring in back inside the tree line there was no opportunity at all uh to get any still images because the it was it was just too dense however if you got your your phone in your pocket even, or, or an Osmo, something like that. This would have been a great situation for the pocket. Um, get some video just to hear the noises that are being made. Get some video of them moving back and forth in the trees because, you know, something Mike's touched on before. If you've got them moving in between the trees, it might not be a great situation for a still, but that makes great video. See those animals moving, see what that behavior is, is presenting. So when you're working a situation, like we've talked about so many times, all that means is just take advantage of every opportunity you have. Change things up. It does you no good to get 600 of the same exact shot. Exactly. Unless you're good. bad at focus. Unless you're really bad at focus. which <laughs> Then you should get yeah. 600 so you get one that works. There's Mark no and I are going to talk later on having focus issues. Oh, well, just... Just, just look at one of us at a time. Just look at one of us on the Skype at a time. <laughs> I was looking, I was looking right in the center. There's kind of a crosshair 
So oh, that's a, is that how? So I haven't tried that. that. <laughs> I haven't tried Pro that. Pro tip technique. number five. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of videos, I want to give a shout out to Doug and to Ron for the latest vlogs that have gone up on our YouTube page because the bald eagle one, the sharp tail grouse, and the sage grouse, great clips, guys, and entertaining. I love the bloopers at the end of the at the end of the third one there. <laughs> Hilarious. And and you brought a lot of content to, to those short clips. So I've enjoyed watching those this week and encourage our listeners to check it out at Wild and Exposed Podcast on our YouTube channel. What it makes and me want to do is it makes me want to go back and shoot those again next year, right? Because we all, Mark and Ron and I did it last year. Ron and mm-hmm. and uh, Doug did it, I don't know, what was that, a couple years ago. But you relive it, and you're like, oh, that was so much fun. But even watching that video that you guys put up, I was looking at it like, I'm going to get me a ghillie suit because I didn't have a ghillie suit last time. And I'm just, you know, that was just perfect. I think Ron thought I lost my mind when I I, uh, suggested before I got out there. And I I bought ghillie suits for all of us, and it worked like a charm. I mean, it just... I mean, there was nothing to hide behind, absolutely nothing. And we stuck out like, I mean, rocks, giant, you know, grassy rocks. And we, I mean, well, in one of the clips, I believe you can see Ron or me, one of us actually crawling up to the bird. That's right. And, and nothing was in, there was nothing to hide behind. So yeah, it was amazing. And you, and just some of the behavior that putting on the ghillie suits, you know, encourages one to, to do is, is worth it too. No, they are awesome, especially in that sagebrush country habitat. Yeah, I was I was lucky to get to wear one of Ron's this spring. And and with my favorite of those are the sharp tail. Their little dance, the way they pound their feet in, and they've got their back end all up and fluffed, and the and the wings out. So, yeah, very animated and, and a lot of fun. I had a response from somebody on social media today from one of those, and one of the video clips on the vlog and they said as cute as they are they're very violent because it's they're actually going to attack one another and defend this leg but we don't see that we see the humor in these birds and and their posturing but it's actually quite a contest yeah so it's a real deal for them all right i'll get on to my pro tip and it is how to find new places to photograph now it's something i get asked all the time where do you take pictures? Where do you do this? Where'd you photograph that? And sometimes I share it. Sometimes I don't for various reasons. Old school, oh, it was so much harder to find where to go. It was word of mouth. You stumble on it. You have conversations. Maybe you're at some kind of conference and you meet people and they share information. You share information. It was always good to share, especially with like-minded people. But it took so long and you had to be so lucky to find new places and to learn how to go. Nowadays, with the internet, you can learn so much, so seriously quickly at your fingertips. And personally, I pick up a lot of information on social media and obviously Instagram being a photo-related or purely photo and video-related content. How you do that? Well, many people, and I've jokingly touched on this numerous times on our podcast, will put down the location actually on their post. And thank you very much, as I've said before. But you often, people often have to dig a little deeper. So you can search a hashtag. So maybe you search a hashtag for humpback whales. And the, any picture that somebody has posted and they've used that hashtag will come up on that feed. 
And there's two things you can look at. There's the most popular and then the most recent. You can hit both of those categories, toggles at the top of that search. And then you look at the photos. And obviously people hashtag words on photos that are totally unrelated because they're not all going to be humpback whales. I'll tell you right now. They'll be everything. But you will see humpback whales through that feed. And theoretically, the most popular ones, the best ones that have the most traction should be at the top of that feed. So you click on that. You can see who the photographer was. And then you can look at those hashtags on that photo. And sometimes they'll put the location. Even if it's something as generic as a state, you're dialing it in, right? They may put location. Or you can also then go to their homepage. And this is where the Sherlock Holmes hat starts to come on. <laughs> you get on their homepage and you can see where they've posted around. If all their stuff is around central Ohio, obviously not for humpback whales, I'm just, <laughs> then, you know, <laughs> I was wondering where you're going to go. With that. <laughs> all right, let's, 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 let's switch that. Let's, let's be technically accurate. If all their posts are around Hawaii, then you can look at that and, and, hone in again and what island around Hawaii and then you can look at the seasonality you can look at when they posted their beach scenes the surfer scenes the pina colada pictures and then the whale well the whales all came up maybe at this time so you can narrow it down narrow it down the ability on social media to learn where to go and photograph now uh, it's just I, I wouldn't say it's easy it takes a little bit of thought but it really is at one's fingertips. Because once you see that, you see Hawaii, you see the name of the island, then you can go on Google and do a search. You know, you can do humpback whales, island, Hawaii, tours, or photographs, or, and that'll come up with other opportunities to fine tune your search and know where to go. So it's, and sometimes it's quite obvious. Other times, like I said, takes a little bit of digging, but it's out there. So can I add to that? Can I add something to you? Absolutely, please do. So I do the same thing, but there's another little tip that you can add to what you just said. So you do this research and you see that you keep, you keep seeing a lot of pictures. Let's just say, well, let's just use Mike, for example. So Mike's got a lot of pictures of big, beautiful mule deer. Okay. Automatically, I think if, he, if he's got a lot of pictures, more mule deer than anything else on his page, then more than likely he's got a good spot near where he lives because generally we shoot more where closer to where we live. So um, I start I go to his page and find out where where he lives. Another thing, just kind of look at people's habits. Where you know what they shoot a lot of is generally going to be closer to where they live. All right, I'm going to go That's... on my page right now. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> And delete everything. And a whole bunch hometown of information. <laughs> <laughs> so Good it's tip. out there. It, it's never it's it's never been this easy uh, to find locations of where to go. And then it's just a matter of thinking the seasonality, the gear, the tactics, and the approach, and and how to do it effectively. Yeah. All right. So that's this week's pro tips, and we're going to go on to our next segment. Our quick touch on, we have the question of the week. And this week's question comes from Frankie. And his question to me was, if I had to give him one tip to help grow his business, what would it be? Now, obviously, it's his photography business if he's asking me. And so he's a wildlife guy? No, he does everything. So he's well, he works in the field of natural resources. So he's a fisheries uh, technician. 
but he's had all kinds of different jobs. He's worked with DU and stuff in the past. And he's traveled a lot, and he's got a very creative and broad eye for photography. I had met him on a recent trip, and then he'd sent me this question via email last week. Before you so go any I further, want... both of you guys have said DU, and I think there's a lot of people that wouldn't know what DU is. Sure. But just kind of uh, clear that up real quick. Ducks Unlimited. Yep. Conservation organization Ducks Unlimited that preserves wetlands for all wildlife Obviously, the ducks, but everything else in wetlands being such a diverse ecosystem, it's a very worthy cause to support. So, again, the question is, if I had to give him one tip to help grow his photography business, what would it be? Now, honestly, it's hard to answer with one sentence, but my uh, response would typically be, I want to know what market he wanted to approach, if he had that in mind. I want to know what his passion is, but specifically... My philosophy on success in photography when it comes to monetizing it is to pick a niche or a style and grow a portfolio based on the highest quality of, of light and composition. But for me, obviously, large mammals are my passion. Ever since I was a kid, they, I just can't get enough time observing, photographing, filming, researching wildlife of that sort. And so the photography made sense to pursue that, and I've never looked back. Find the passion, hone in on that subject content, and grow a portfolio. And when I started in this business, a photographer that kind of mentored part of what I did on, on the business side, he kind of shocked me when I asked him a very similar question. He said, go and make a portfolio of 5,000 great images before you even knock on a door. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I don't have time for that. But there was some validity to that because over that period of time to build that many images obviously the portfolio became much better the image con uh, composition and my ability to interpret light which is very important for striking images you know harsh light uh, it's something that was talked about probably a lot more in the past than it is now but it's a it's shuts image quality down no go don't touch harsh light there are filters available of course for some applications nowadays and then of course the editing platforms are far more varied than it used to be for slide and can create better images out of um, questionable light scenarios but nothing beats training one's eye for light and finally what i would recommend is you know once somebody knows what they want to build a portfolio so again let's just hypothetically throw it back to to whales Go and look at the best professionals in the world that film whales and photograph whales. Look at their compositions, and that's another way to train one's eye for light compositions, angles, and just start with that template and then add your own flavor to it. Now, I want to throw that quickly to each one of you guys, and if you were to say right. one thing to Frankie... Well, Mark, you stole half of my thunder, so Sorry, I'll right. just... Uh, no, no, that's fine, because it's, it's a really good tip. It's a really good tip. So uh, just to reiterate, yeah, find your passion. You, you're never going to do anything better than what is passion-driven, period. And so find out what your passion is, and let that be your niche, and you know, really master. Be the master in that market of that niche. And a lot of times, the smallest niches produce the largest outcome and that even goes into marketing for social media people with with very small niche markets that you'd never think of just knock it out of the woods with with marketing skills and, it, and the same applies so 
go with your passion and master that and just be the best you can possibly be in that niche. The other thing uh, kind of goes into marketing yourself because when you're getting started, you're trying to start a business. Uh, this is such a cutthroat business. There's so many people in it. Everybody thinks being a wildlife photographer is the greatest job on earth and that it's just all roses and puppy dogs and it's not it is a it's a dog eat dog world and it gets worse every year and so you've really got to master your marketing skills to be successful in it and so one this was advice that i got from a mentor of mine many years ago he was a commercial photographer and it applies to anything he said you're only as good as your worst image and so what he means by that is don't show a thousand great pictures and one mediocre picture because people are going to remember, they aren't going to remember the thousand perfect pictures that you shot. They're going to remember that one horrible one that you posted. So it's much better to show five spectacular pictures, only the cream of the crop and no really bad ones. And so the, the you know, your worst picture was a good one. So people will remember that. Um, you don't need to do like you were talking about 5,000, a portfolio of 5,000 that that's not necessary. That's not, you know, don't do that many, you know, you need to build a portfolio, but you know, I would just concentrate on just making a small portfolio, just as spectacular as you possibly could. I, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I think the context of the big portfolio was before starting with a magazine. So if you, mm -hmm. if you tackle that niche of magazine, architectural digest you want to get in there and have the features you can't just sell them on the one feature so you might have 25 pictures to knock it out of the park they buy that feature they loved it the relationship worked the marketing worked they phone back six weeks later and say let's do another one of those if you don't have it that's not good that's so to have true. enough of a portfolio to keep the engine going before knocking on those doors so I agree with you, Doug, 100%. You don't need 5,000 images to get going. And quality is paramount. So fewer high-quality images. But at the same time, when you start knocking on doors as potential sales and you want to have a, a deep enough portfolio to back up and keep working with them so that as frequently as they're willing to assign projects, you're able to, to answer that call. Yeah. Michael, what would you tell Frankie? I think you guys both mentioned exactly what I would say, and it worked for okay. me was the mentor. You got to have somebody that can, you know, you have to have somebody that can tell you, hey, this is a horrible image, or this is yeah. why it's a horrible image. And it, when I started out, I was taking all these pictures that I thought were just spectacular, right? Well, someone came over, you know, one of my mentor came over, and he, he's looking at these images, and he's just totally just slamming every one of them and i'm i'm like crushed i was total like oh i was so bummed out but that sparked you know i wasn't going to give it up so i had to figure it out and i looked at what he said and i looked at the image and i'm like ah, he's right you know yep that that one I, that's no good that's no good so it just that mentor did everything for me in the very beginning i mean now you have to take everything else that you guys have said and add on to it to make everything work but it was that initial, you know, a lot of times, a lot of the images that I like even today aren't the best image. It was the one that was the hardest to get, or it was the one that, I don't know, there's always a reason why I like an image a little bit more than the one that is the most popular image, but it's probably not the most sellable image. It's the image that I like. 
So you really have to use that mentor kind of of approach just to get a well-rounded sense of what have a critique what your yeah. stuff's going to do. So, Good advice. Wrong. Because you got you got an emotional connection to those images that that you like, and you know the people that don't have that connection, obviously, if you can't relay it through the image, they're not going to have the same same feeling. I was, exactly. Yeah. For me, I would just say don't get in a hurry. I think you know your your discussion on having that portfolio in place, Mark. I I fully understand that you don't you don't want to give them this slamming mule deer shot, and then they come back and you have to tell them sorry that was it. Because then you just you're not ever going to hear from that person again, or you're not going to have that door open for you again. Uh, and and I think let's just for example, <laughs> let's look at the let's look at the wedding photography industry. And and I'm going to make some people mad here, and I understand that, and I'm a big boy, and you can you can send your comments to Mark Raycroft. <laughs> <laughs> hold on let's, let's get the audio correct Here's, whose voice feed is that yeah okay all right so i see people in the wedding photography industry that have owned a dslr for two weeks and now they're out doing weddings that was their dream they want to do weddings they go out there the first job that they get they just get crushed because nobody's ever going to hire them again based on the images that they took people don't want to pay them that kind of thing so take the time to learn your craft and hone your craft. And I think that's one of those things that goes along with building that 5,000 image portfolio is that you're going to take way more images than that anyway, but hone your craft to the point where you think you're pretty good. And then you go to your mentor and they think you're, are they thinking the same thing? You know, don't get in a hurry to get yourself out there as bad as you might want to or as impatient as you might be you know patience is is probably the the one virtue that a wildlife photographer can't be without and so make that patience uh relate to you know your uh, your business as well and be patient with building that it's not going to build overnight don't expect it to if you're in it be in it for the long haul that's good so this new Canon XF705 just caught my attention, and I had to ask the guys, is it worth it? Is it worth spending 7000 US or 9000 Canadian to pick up this new camcorder because it's 4K? Would it work for commercial applications? And basically, the guys, Doug and Michael, had a variety of answers for me, which just took this in a new direction, and I want to ask them, first of all, of course, about the XF705, if it's just a Band-Aid, if it's just good for Internet stuff, or if it would be something major networks would buy footage from at that 4K processor, that, that one-inch CMOS sensor, whether that would pull it off. But I also am curious, again, aside from the, the smartphones and some of these new gimbals, we know what they can do. We're excited about those, you know, the GoPro 7, these applications for Internet application. I wanted to dive more deeply into the differences for commercial video work for wildlife nature photographers or videographers between the DSLRs and those capabilities right now and these camcorders and then the high-end video cameras like the red so if one of you would like to take a moment and start off maybe by saying uh, the xf705 for mark raycroft who wants to become 
known a bit more as a videographer? Do we get a thumbs up? Do we get a pause on that? You know, what's the? Uh, I think I think the best way maybe to approach it. Um, I will give you my thoughts on because you can't talk about one without talking about the others okay. as the comparison. Um, yeah, and I'm not going to compare all of the features and specs of all these different cameras. What I have done is I've kind of broken it down into categories. So, um, you know, you have the 705 camera that to me falls into the, um, pro camcorder category. And then you have your DSLRs. And then you have your cameras like Reds or Aries or Sony F5 and F55. Um, you know, those cameras are, are high-end production cameras. All right. So let's go back to what each of the each of these categories are generally used for. So the 705 in the camcorder uh, category, that is great for um for reality shows it's definitely broadcast um qualified uh, the requirements it meets the specs for broadcast capability um it, it those cameras are made for um producer shooters so in in the in the tv world of uh, say reality tv um the the guys on the ground that are shooting they're usually one two three man teams that are broken up to cover a specific person or a group of people. So let's just take swamp people. So you'll have one guy, um, one shooter producer, and he, that's what he does. He shoots and he produces his own content. So he um, he's a one-man band is what I'm getting at. And he is embedded with one of the, the, the cast members from swamp people. And so that camera, those camcorders, they have autofocus. They have built-in fantastic audio uh, with your standardized XLR mics, which is a big deal. They uh, they have a high enough data rate, uh, megabytes per second, that it uh, qualifies for broadcast quality. And that same in those same specs would be uh, color space and your uh, file formats. So those do fall into broadcast specs and they're great it's a great running gun camera some of the drawbacks to those cameras are because they are made specifically for that type of application a, a lot of time is not <clears throat> excuse me let me back up a lot of time is not put into getting one specific shot on say a reality show or something like that. Therefore they're not as cinematic as say something the BBC or Nat Geo is doing where um, you're using a, a more high, high end production camera that takes time. It takes 30 minutes to set up for a shot or to keep doing a shot until you get it, you know, get it right. So those cameras are built, to run and gun and get a lot of footage really quick, thus the autofocus and having built-in NDs. Um, great camera. Let me say that those cameras are they do an excellent job, but you most of them do not have interchangeable lenses. There are some exceptions, like the new Sony F, uh, FS7 has interchangeable lenses, but these camcorders without interchangeable lenses, you're losing a lot of the physical. Uh, characteristics that you get from your primes and some of your telephoto lenses for those very compressed cinematic shots. Um, 
you're dealing you're not dealing with the full frame sensor as well so with these cameras you're not as, as able to uh, get that real cinematic soft depth of field um, so there are things that you lose image quality is still very very high on those cameras so the dslrs the dslrs are were never really made to be video cameras they were digital cameras, and once they found out that the processors could actually be amped up enough to um, to buffer multiple frames, that buffer was actually then morphed into processing an actual image in, in sus subsequent frames. Thus, you have now video camera, because if you can record 30 frames a second, that's what video is. It's 24 or 25 or 30 frames or 60 frames a second. Um, played back subsequently. Sub, I can't say that. That works. Um, so, uh, but, so some of the, the drawbacks and pluses to DSLRs. DSLR is a full-frame sensor, so you have an extremely cinematic look, very cinematic. That, that depth of field just drops off. You can just make a, a background disappear and your subject pop out. They are inherently very sharp. On the on the downside of them is that they are not ergonomically friendly. There, it's a it's a it's not a natural feeling camera to hold as a video camera. Uh, so they're always kind of a, a wrestle to deal with. Um, they do not have good built-in audio, so you have to come up with uh, some other plan, whether it's uh, something like a juice box or a Zoom mic, uh, external mic recorder. There's always something extra you have to do to get good audio. It's not plug and play with a DSLR. DSLRs that I know of to date don't have built-in neutral density filters. So that means now you're either going to have to start dropping neutral density filter plates into a matte box that's now locked onto rails that go under a lens um, or use something like a variable neutral density filter that has to be screwed on like a, say, a circular polarizer. Um, so still, nothing easy to do. And the DSLRs and the uh, camcorders, like the 705, they don't record a true raw file in video. Now, the, the DSLRs are doing raw files in the still frames, but they don't do, you know, a true raw file. They'll do a flat profile which gives you characteristics of a raw file which you can then go back and kind of color up and grade in um, in post processing so uh, dslr it puts out a great image but not easy to use and there's always something else that has to be rigged or finagled to make it work um, then you get into your high-end production cameras like I said, Reds, Aries, Sony's, uh, Sony 5s, F55, F5s, uh, all of those type of cameras, Phantoms, Phantom cameras. They are made with the understanding that you have the time, you're, you're provided the time and all of the accessories to do high-end work. Um, nothing is quick. Nothing is running gun. Um, just by the sheer size and weight of these cameras and the tripods, it's obvious nothing is running gun. So very, very heavy, very, very large. They have these cameras have extremely high data rates. You can shoot at extremely high frame rates with just the touch of a button. 
and not have to go through a, an elaborate menu to get there. So I can be shooting something in, in real time speed. And then just literally with the tap of a screen, I can be now shooting at 200, 240 frames a second and getting beautiful slow-mo and then switch right back and not miss anything. So you have that, that wonderful capability. The dynamic range is much, much higher than any of the other cameras that we've talked about. So these cameras are in the 18 stops of dynamic range, that category. Human eye sees, I think, 22, 23 stops. 22, so it's yeah. pre yeah, it's pretty darn impressive. So that's a, a huge plus. Also, uh, these cameras have a pre-record. And for wildlife, that is absolutely absolutely the bomb i mean like with the red i can set it from anywhere from two seconds to a pre-record to one minute so basically that means as long as as long as i have the camera on and pointed and focused at the subject i could go take a sip of coffee and the action could have happened a minute ago a minute ago and as long as i get back to the camera and hit the record button within 60 seconds i've actually captured it so, you know, that's worth, that's just worth its weight in gold right there. The, the production cameras are, they're not perfect. Uh, there are some drawbacks to these. And like I said, the, it kind of goes into the, what I said before about you're given the time and the other accessories to, to make these, to, to do a proper, you know, high-end work. Um, so these cameras do not have built-in neutral density filters. So you're, you're dealing with large neutral density glass plates now that makes you use map boxes. And now you got to have a French flag, which is basically a sunshade that sits off the front. Um, they don't have autofocus. They, they don't have good audio, believe it or not, and, uh, and very heavy and, and obviously very expensive. But the, 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 con, I mean, the pros to those cameras so outweigh the other, the other aspects of the cons that that's the reason they go for it. Um, now, the is like audio generally with wildlife work. I I have never well I say never once once I have been responsible for recording my own audio with wildlife stuff. Generally, you've got an audio guy that's doing that separately, recording it separately, and I'm just filming. You know, I'm filming the whales and everything, and he's catching the the splash and the blows and all that kind of stuff, and the seagulls overhead, and all that that audio is put in later. Um, or even sometimes it's canned audio that is added later. So, um, so that's the reason, like RID, you know, they, their cameras are very modular. So you build them the way you want them to, to work. And um, I don't use a lot of audio, so I didn't spend an extra five grand into adding all the audio modules that the RID needs to capture great audio. So, um, so it gives you, you know, you have a lot more flexibility in how you build the camera to your needs. You know, you don't, if you don't need a bunch of extra bells and whistles, um, then you can, you can have a high end camera that only does what you want it to. So, um, I think ultimately you have to think, consider, don't think about the three categories of cameras as one is really better than the other. I think you need to think about what is your end goal? What kind of work do you want to do with it? is you know is is mark wanting to do a really good job of documenting his adventures or is this um is he trying to uh you know enter the world of wildlife cinematography and so you know if 
if that is your goal, is your, if your goal is to do just cinematography, then I would be thinking a little more about going ahead and entering the production camera world. I would not say jump in at $50,000, but guess what? Red has got a Red Raven that is stunningly beautiful the imagery coming out of it, and you can get into that for under ten grand. Um, now there's a bunch of accessories that go with it, like everything else. But, but if you were, you know, if you're going to do adventure, running gun, that kind of stuff, and still want to get some great um, imagery, by all means, seven to five is the way to go. Or something. If you there, there is a hybrid between these two now, uh, the Sony FS7, uh, interchangeable lenses. The BBC is a matter. Of, they have listed it as one of their accepted cameras. Uh, for production work and um, and you can actually put you know these huge telephoto cinema lenses on that camera and it does unbelievable work a lot of the high end stuff uh, is actually coming off a, a Sony FS7 now so um, that is kind of a hybrid between having a running gun and you know entering into serious uh, wildlife cinematography so I think that's kind of where my, my, my initial response to you in this would be. So I'm going to dump it in, in uh, Mike's lap now. <laughs> that was excellent. Excellent. Uh, I, really thorough. I do appreciate that. I have a couple of questions. And I, I don't know. Okay, well, like you, you want to answer those well, first? Ask one, me those first. And then well, let me just add two things before that. The only Go other thing it. I was thinking along with what you okay, were talking about, Doug, was there's the – C300, I think that is also on the list that BBC will do. So that is Canon's offering that would compare to that FS7. And then with wildlife stuff, and you hear about it a lot, they'll be, depending on what you're shooting, if you get something that is just like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing, anybody's going to buy it. And it doesn't matter what it was shot on because, you know, if you've got a picture of a bald eagle or a golden eagle carrying a, a baby sheep off, if you shot it on your iPhone, they're going to take it, right? Because it's it's just going to tell that story. So knowing that, any camera works. But Doug did an excellent job of just kind of lining it all out, and he's dead on on all of it. It's just a matter of how deep do you want to go? The coolest thing about the DSLRs is it kind of runs the gamut. I mean, it does both. It'll do stills. And then with a few changes and some of the ergonomic things, if you want to shoot a true video camera, a DSLR as a true video camera, then yeah, you need a lot of accessories to really pimp it out to the to get that really good quality video. And then I think we could go into a larger discussion on that raw thing that he touched on, but I don't know how, how deep we want to go into this. But when you get into the color... And if you look at anything that is produced by, say, the BBC or Nat Geo or the show we did uh, for uh, the Fish and Wildlife that's running on Animal Planet now, that was all colored to be similar. You know, it may not have been shot in similar conditions as far as light goes, but when you get that, if you shoot it flat and it's a raw image, there's a lot of information there that they can take and then they can tweak it to kind of match that next shot or match the, you know, match that sequence. So it doesn't look out of place because nine times out of 10 footage is coming from three or four different time periods or places or whatever. And they tie it all together to tell that story. Or cameras. Yeah. Or cameras. Yeah. So having that raw is really cool. You, you can adjust the DSLR stuff. You can adjust the 705 stuff, 
But what happens is you get a few adjustments and then that's it because you'll start degradating the quality of that image so much that then in the end, it just looks like a muddy, ugly picture that you don't want to put out anyway. But they're really good at putting out really good video right out of the box or right out of the camera. So you don't need to do a lot of adjustments as long as it's going in something that that particular format or that typical that style of show where you don't really care if it all looks the same so i don't know i think he, let's go into some of your questions those Mark. are great add-ons no I, that's good to know because for somebody who wants to dive into commercial that to be shooting in raw so that it has the greatest application possible you don't want anything to limit the work right when somebody purchases it if they can blend it with their other sequences they want better but you know one of the things so clearly the 705 one of the handicaps could be the, the challenge in getting that shallow depth of field which has a cinema 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 say help me out cinematographic or cin <laughs> no, cinematic cinematic <laughs> yeah i wish i did that on purpose cinematic <laughs> <laughs> cinematic perspective which has great appeal nowadays right but i love the housing i love the run and gun but another question i had okay so when i bought the 305 it was hd and 4K was just on the cusp. Okay, so Canon comes out with a 705 4K. High five, exciting. But wait a minute. 4K TVs are out. I have friends that I'm looking at who are shooting at more than 4K right now. So is there already a shelf life for the 4K application? And I know what you said, Michael, and it was a great perspective saying if you get that unique sequence, it doesn't matter. And we all hope for that. But obviously, if, to think about doing it commercially, you're building a library. So... Would it be fiscally smart to start building a library in 2019 at 4K? Yes. Yes. I think you're fine to do the that. Shelf the shelf life is okay. Yes. I think you're fine to do that because we can't broadcast 4K. We can, we can um, stream 4K over the internet and show it on a 4k television but we cannot broadcast they there are some networks that that are still at 720 um uh espn was one of the first ones to to jump to broadcasting 1080 and they had such a pipeline problem uh you know bandwidth problem uh doing that that they had to drop back and go back to 720 for many years before they got it all figured out and then they were still the leaders they were the first ones to jump in and start start broadcasting 1080 so you know we're still at 1080 um now being that the world is moving more and more to streaming content uh you know yes more and more 4k is is being shown but uh until they start until they start broadcasting 4k I wouldn't worry about uh, the shelf life of it yet. And and the other reason is, is because that I know of, Red is the only one that has anything greater than that. Uh, well, a mirror might. A mirror might have 5.7K or something like that. I, I'm not sure. But um, so it, you're, you're, what I'm saying, the bottom line is your options are limited if you're trying to go above 4K. Okay. So, um, I would say do a poll of how many how many of your friends are actually watching 4K content. I guarantee none. you none. Yeah. I don't have any that I the know. The only thing you're going to pick it up on is Netflix will stream 4K. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, YouTube has a 4K version, and there's probably a few others, I'm sure. I don't have a 4K monitor yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I just haven't gotten around to getting one. I'm too busy doing work and stuff. And I can watch everything that I shoot in 4K. I don't have to have a 4K monitor to watch it. Now, I can't watch... And the computers. I don't have a computer. Most computers aren't fast enough to play 4K. Native 4K, just at full resolution, they can't do it. The the new ones can. The new Macintosh computers or Apple computers can do it. But you're talking 12000 bucks or 13000 bucks for a machine to play that footage. So I think with all those things being said, I, I, I would go with a Red Raven or I would go with the C300. And or I would go with the DSLR that has a true 4K ability if to shoot 4K, just to get that more cinematic feel. But I wouldn't. I would keep going with that and and stay with that. I would always, for me, and I think for Doug, we always lean towards the red or or um, something that gives us that raw. Mm-hmm. And there's so many out there. I mean, I, Doug touched on several, but there's several more out there that I think. Like, I can't keep track of them all. Like, does the C300, it'll shoot 4K, but I don't think it'll do 4K raw. Right. But, or or it'll shoot 4K, but it won't shoot slow-mo. Right. Right? So, and that is one of the things with wildlife. Slow-mo really plays a big part in that whole production. Uh, Everything I shoot is in 4K, pretty much. If it's just stock stuff, you can always speed it up to bring it up to real time. And vice versa, you can take uh, regular speed footage and slow it down, but then what you do is you lose quality. But if you shoot it in slow-mo, then your quality's there. you got that many frames per second. And then you can speed it up, and it just looks like regular footage. So um, that would be a barrier for me is the slow-mo. Big barrier in wildlife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't get anything that shot less than, than 60 frames a second. That way you can at least have, you can slow down your footage by 50%, you know, so you at least have that kind of capability to, you know, in something, you know, a deer running, uh, mm-hmm. or a bird flying slowed down 50%. That's pretty good. I mean, that's right. still, that's, you still getting a very cinematic look, you know, if you want more than that, then that's when you, you, you're automatically have to step into, you know, the, the higher end cameras. Now with, with all this said, the, like the FS seven. Sony's camera, uh, which is now the, uh, one of their flagship cameras, um, it actually has a module from Sony that you screw onto the back of it, and you can record 4K 60 frames raw, true raw, interchangeable lenses, built-in neutral density, built-in XLR audio, and you know uh, uh, scores of other features, but um, really. It's kind of a uh, an amazing camera, to be honest with you. So, what's the price uh, for that camera? I haven't looked at it before. Six between uh, sixty-eight to seventy-two hundred dollars. And then this module that goes on the back would be priced approximately. That's about, I think I think it's approximately eighteen hundred dollars additional. So you're kind of in the same price bracket as this seven hundred five. Yeah. So you got so the importance is the cinema. <laughs> cinematic <laughs> the cinematic look right right the shallow depth of field the ability to do slow-mo those are the handicaps of the 705 i you know it's hard for me to separate from the 705 because i love that zoom 
and the autofocus, right? Those two things are, are just candy, right? To be able to do video, but you're not creating the, creating the style of footage that you want to target the best applications. Like I said, ultimately it's, you, you have to decide what, what do you want to do with this? You know, yeah, what, what do you want to, yeah, what's your market, you know? Um, and, uh, and it's a tool. So, you know, a couple of the other shocking um, things to know about this range of cameras uh, is that, so like the 705, it uses $40 SD cards. Fantastic, right? <laughs> My red mini mag cartridge, one cartridge, $2,800. One. It gives me 20 minutes of footage for $2,800. And, you, you know, the, some of the, the higher, um, uh, the faster cards, I should say, for the DSLR. So, like on my Canon 1DX Mark II, um, it, it takes the CFast. And, um, you know, they're, what, a couple hundred dollars maybe, something like that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, j- just things that you have to think about there. Right. Yeah, the overall package. By the time you're out in the field shooting, I know there's, like you said, with the Red, it's a modular system. So the Raven being that price tag, if it's, you know, you're going to be adding more to that before you're shooting effectively. And we haven't even talked about tripods. We haven't even talked about tripods and heads. Uh, And in some cases, that can be equally as expensive as the camera itself, to be honest with you. Um, Support is everything with video. Um, You know, unless you have the. Yeah, with long lens stuff, absolutely. You know, unless you're using a gimbal or something like that, um, you know, uh, long lens work, for, you know, obviously long lens stuff for wildlife. So uh, your tripods are, are very expensive, and the fluid heads that allow you to pan and tilt the camera, you know, very, very smoothly. Uh, they, there's a price tag that comes with that, for sure. And, and kind of, I want to, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the other price tag is, is, Look at how you travel now, Mark. You've got one bag with all your stuff in it, and even your computer fits in it, right? The minute you go to video, that's all out the door. You, you're Now you're taking Pelican cases worth of stuff that you have to check on, so it has to go in a Pelican case to protect it. And it's just harder to manage. I mean, it's not undo. I do it all the time. It's not undoable. It's it's you can do it. It's just managing all that thought process in your head of okay, did I have this? Do I have this? Do I have this? Do I have this? I got all these pieces so that when I get there, I'm ready to go. I I, I regularly forget something because mm-hmm. there's just so much to remember. It's it's you know the one other thing that is just as shocking as what Doug said about the cards is the viewfinders. So if you're going to use a viewfinder on a red, you know, you can get a monitor, a touchscreen monitor, which works great. Right. Provided your eyes see, you know, at 12 inches or whatever, 16 inches, and provided it's not bright sun out, and, you know, so then you're done with the sunshade. So my way around that was to buy the viewfinder that goes on the red. Well, now you're talking three grand just for the viewfinder to go on the red. But it solves all my problems. It's got a diopter built in, and it's got everything that I need, and I can cut all the lights so I can get nail my focus when I need to. So 
it's that accessory thing that Doug was talking about where you can get into a Raven pretty darn cheap. You know, I think the bodies themselves are what, 6,000 bucks or something. Yeah. Not that right. bad. But by the time you buy the rails and you buy the matte box and you buy the lenses and you buy the viewfinder and you buy the cards, you're probably closer 12. to 15, yeah, yeah. 12, 15,000 bucks. <clears throat> and you're right. then at the pretty close, I think that's where that C300 Canon comes in at is around 13 i think it's at 13 and i think you'd be in the same boat with the fs7 too where you would have the rails and you would have these other accessories you would have to buy to really make it do what you want it to do because you can't just slap a big old piece of glass on one of these camera bodies and then hang everything off the camera body you know that's what these rails are for is it it supports this whole system that you've got on these rails and then you've got this huge plate like an Arca-Swiss-style Arca plate that runs the span, it spans it all, and then you can really balance and do whatever you need to do and support everything properly so that when you're hiking around, you're not messing up your camera or breaking the mount or doing whatever. It's just a lot of stuff to think about. The biggest, I think, being your market, number one, how much stuff do you want to deal with, number two, in the field. But, man, when you get that footage and you get you come back with something and it's just like butter, I mean... The clamming bears that I got in Alaska. I mean, you watch that in slow mo; it's awesome. It you just it's worth all right. the heartache and headache to do it. Yeah, yeah. and Glad you know we don't want to talk. We're we're certainly not trying to talk you into or out of anything. And, and for any of our listeners that are in the same kind of boat, you, you know, interested or intrigued in, in about video, just don't know where to start or if to start or that kind of thing. You know, the thing about you know, I'll, I'll always be a still photographer at heart. You know, that's what I started with. And, um, but I, I cannot lie if, you know, I, I fell head over heels in love with video, um, you know, years ago. And for me, you know, I always thought that my puzzle was complete, uh, with the still business that I had. And until I started messing with the video, then it was just like, you know what? there was that little ruffled corner to the puzzle that did wasn't quite mashed down all the way. And that's what the video did for me. It, it just locked everything. And that's what I had been missing all my life. And it's the ability to watch the entire story. Well, to record the entire story as it unfolds, how many times have you been out in the field, you're shooting stills, you see this incredible behavior or just a beautiful scene or whatever, just, and you're like, I can't really capture what I'm feeling, you know, in one shot, even though, you know, a great photograph is being able to tell a whole story in one, in one image. There's so many things that you can't capture with one image. And that's what video did for me. And so, you know, by no means to, you know, trying to, trying to sway you one way or the other I thought um, I was thinking that maybe we could give you a good weighted opinion on every, each of these categories. Um, so interesting enough, little, little, uh, little trivia note for you that most people don't know. The red camera is actually a DSLR. Ding, ding, <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> you should have just like one, right? You know, yeah, it's, it it's... was actually, it actually started out as a, medium format DSLR for fashion photographers. And they, it's about the same time frame that the other uh, digital cameras figured out that, Hey, it's all about processing speed and frames per second. It's a video camera. 
And Very then cool. they, I had no they idea. Took, they just took it and ran with it. So right. if I had so to say, guys, oh, go ahead, Ron. No, you're you're good. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say if if you two, Mark and Ron, if you guys wanted to start doing video, you're familiar with the DSLRs. You use them all the time. I would go that route. I would maybe buy another body and dedicate that to the video just because you can have it. So let's get back into that discussion with the pro tip that I had today, right? So when you're dealing with neutral density, if you want that DSLR to give you that cinematic look, it's not, you can't shoot it like you were just shooting that still. If you were shooting a still at one five hundredth of a second at five, six or whatever, you shoot, you just start shooting video and I do it. I still do it because the situation might be where you don't have time to say, Oh, okay, no I need to screw on a neutral density filter. I need to back off my shutter speed. I need to adjust the ISO so I can get that shutter speed where it needs to be. And then I need to set my aperture to five, six or below or whatever I want for that feel that is going to take you. I mean, I think the best person at it is probably going to take them 20 seconds to get all that done. Right. So if you had a camera over your shoulder that is, or let's say you put it on a tripod and you carry a tripod with that video camera over your shoulder, and then your stills is still running gun just like you do, you could kind of do both and not be stretched too thin. All right. And still get that really cool stuff that a Discovery Channel would use or a BBC would use or... You know, a variety of shows would use that footage for sure that you would be getting out of there. So just for clarification, the the footage, 4K footage you pull off a DSLR like the D850 would work on those platforms. It's approved for BBC. For a certain percentage. So the way Uh, they do it, what, what they do is they look at a project. They'll say like a one hour, a one hour film they break it down into percentages of that hour. So, you know, uh, Sony F5 is rated for 100%. You, they, they would accept 100% of that hour footage shot on that. Uh, GoPro Hero 5 actually falls in at like 10%. So 10% of it could be shot on that. You know, the uh, Sony FS7 falls in at, I think, maybe 70 or 80 percent. It's probably higher than that, actually, now with the raw recorder um, offered and that kind of stuff. So uh, the the one uh, Canon 1DX Mark II and 5D Mark IV are, are way up there, up, up the list, too. I think they're in the 40 or 50s. Okay. So it's percentage wise, um, right. and that that um, that producer's guide is actually available, you know, online to find right. out what cameras are even approved. Mm-hmm. And I've you heard could about that before. I'm glad we shared that with our listeners. Yeah, that you could basically take a what is it, Atomos? Yeah, Atomos recorder. So you mm-hmm. can take an external recorder, hook it up to your DSLR, and get better quality than what the DSLR is going to record. So you can hook up an external monitor. They're a monitor too, so they work as a monitor. And then they'll take a feed out of your camera that is a true HD or true 4K. And then they'll record it without compressing it. If you're recording 4K out of the camera to the card in the camera, it's compressed. And there again, difference between raw and out of the camera. Right. You know, if you're working with a compressed image already, it's going to be hard to... Yeah, I have I think, one of those. I bought one with the 305, and I tried to rig it up, and I just couldn't figure it out. <laughs> and so I tossed it and just 
shot in the HD, but I still have it. And, and, and it's maybe just me. I just need to be a little more patient and, yeah. and set that up. That, yeah, I'd forgot about that. It's called a ninja, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. a ninja. Adamus yeah. ninja. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm sure they're like, 10 versions beyond what you you sure. got already yeah, but years ago. Yeah, but yeah. there's still a, you know, that one might record 4k you know i don't know you just have to do the it's dated for sure there's just a, yeah. a lot to it none of it is is not approachable it's all approachable you just got to figure right. out what you're willing to deal with in the field and what works best for you mm -hmm. cost and what yeah everything from the smartphones now i mean we can do so much for internet applications for websites, for YouTube. I mean, we can knock it out of the park with all kinds of recording devices. But I just wanted to cover it as a professional still photographer. And I totally get the vibe you were, you were talking about there, Doug, about capturing that sequence in video, mm -hmm. the fluid motion, the sound, the, the action. I mean, I love collecting the still images, that freeze frame of that moment. And it does resonate in print. But we all know it doesn't resonate like it doesn't it will in video. So even on what we offer with the podcast, I mean, we have our show notes, we have our still photos so people can see on various podcasts on these trips we've done, what we collected. And that's great. But I, I'm excited more and more excited about having these video clips that take people there. And it's that much more of an intimate experience. So that's why my interest in, in the videography side continues to grow. And with the capabilities of the modern DSLRs and these new little gizmos coming up and these gimbals and the smartphones getting better and better. It just is a more part of everyday shooting for everybody. You know, you know something that Ron said uh, earlier, and, and, and it's so true with video, there are moments that make for fantastic video that are completely unshootable in the still world. Um, for example... Uh, a grizzly bear, you know, walking through the forest and he could be in some really thick stuff where you don't, you do not have a still photo opportunity. It's just, there's not enough bear there to even use the trees as foreground or, you know, it just doesn't work. Um, you got to wait till he comes out to a clearing or something. Whereas with video, if you can see enough of that bear, you know, to focus on it, and just tracking through and just you're seeing glimpses of that bear and parts and pieces, you know, kind of peek out between a tree behind a bush. And then all of a sudden the head is revealed, man, that's great stuff that, you know, that you can't do with a still one still image or even a sequence of still images um, so that only video can could handle. So, you know, you've just opened up a whole new podcast. <laughs> we have to talk about the differences in video composition versus stills. Hey, we'll do train, it. Right? We train our eye for stills and composition. Ron was talking about that earlier. With video, I mean, there's a different skill set. There's some overlap, but there's so much more to the video that we've got to, we've got to touch on. In you know, there's so much more. soon. There's so much more. And just <laughs> one thing that I'll just throw out, and then we can do it in another podcast. I hire a lot of videographers to help me with projects, right? And I train a lot of videographers, too. The people that were still photographers are always, in my opinion, better videographers than someone that's just doing video from the get-go. I've always had the experience where they just always, you know, I think it's just something about having that ability to compose a really nice image that carries over and you still need to be able to do that in video, but then you got to attack on everything else that we'll talk about in a future podcast. Yeah. And that's, that's what I was going to ask earlier is, you know, 
editing is a whole nother ball game, uh, editing video versus stills. Um, but as far as the learning curve, so for somebody who does go to one of these production cameras, you know, you've got the background in still photography, so you understand, you know, exposure and, and the ways that you can affect or impact exposure. What is, you know, I guess, Doug, for you, I think, Mike, you were in the video, video world quite a while ago. And, and Doug, as you were making the transition, when you were doing your show, you are kind of making the transition into that production-type camera. If you guys have both answered, you know, what was the learning curve for you to get to the quality or, or the, the level where you, fig, you thought that you were at the professional production level? Trying to, you go ahead. I'm trying to think about that. <laughs> how, how many months of sitting in front of this software and tutorials and friends and mentoring through that software process did it take that I, you felt you were? I think I'll the way I would answer that is it's a team. I don't ever try to do anything all on my own. I, and I know there's guys that do it on, my, on their own. But I'll tell you what, when we were doing that thing, when Doug and I were working on that show that he created, the thing with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and we were shooting panthers, it's cool to be both. And I could see all of us doing it on one of our future trips, right? If you have, you know, Doug is shooting this, and I know he's shooting wide. I'm over here shooting this, and I'm shooting tight. And then we're we're working together to come up with to tell this story and then we had an audio guy that's capturing audio that we need that that then is going to be put together and then we know none of us are going back to edit it we're taking it back to this hotshot editor that does nothing but edit and they're going to take all the production notes that we take in the field they're going to get all the footage that we got and then they're going to take their talent where they really excel and they're going to put this whole thing together to come up with something so Video tends to be, now if you look at it from a stock point of view, there's plenty of opportunities there too. So you can be that one man show and just go out and shoot stuff. But if you're going to work on a project like we're starting to do with our vlogs and we're starting to do with, you know, telling the stories that we want to tell, having that collective group working on it is pretty awesome. And I don't think, yeah. I think you have to have that experience with that. You have to know what these editors are going through. Right. And I always find that the best editors or the best shooters do you know how to edit? Because you, That's right. you've got to know what this editor's going through to put something together. And you can't just give somebody, you know, a hundred tight shots and then say, make something really cool. Cause it's not going to happen. It's got to have everything, but that's where the team comes in. Because if Doug had to go down and shoot that Florida Panther thing by himself, he's probably looking another two or three days yeah, to hopefully get similar behavior that yeah. then will cut together. Whereas if we were both shooting, we got similar stuff, same animals, same thing, and then same audios being recorded too, and then it's going to an editor that's going to put all that together. Yeah, I'd have to say, you know, it, it was uh, the, the whole team um, effort thing. That's absolutely 100% true. Um, as far as my transition over to where I am now, I guess, or the level I'm at now, um it was a huge um it was a huge learning curve in the 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 sense of trying to untrain bad habits that i already had um you know so i learned a lot of stuff just mistakes not just just 
trying to figure things out on my own early on with video. And then, you know, once you start, you know, getting more experience, you're like, Oh my God, I, you know, uh, that's completely, I was doing this wrong and, and, you know, old habits are hard to break. Right. So, you know, that was the hardest thing for me is trying to realize, okay, no, what you thought was the best way is not the best way. This is the best way, um, you know, in, in trying to implement those, those techniques. And it's all about technique. There's so much concentration that goes into video, running a video camera over a still camera. Still camera for, for me was, it, it, it was, uh, it was a second nature thing. I, you know, it's just like the camera appeared in front of my face and I'm shooting pictures and I never thought about technical stuff with video for some reason, there is just, you have to be laser focused on everything you do. There's so many things going on simultaneously. Uh, you know, just, just for example. Um, so let, let's say uh, you're panning with the video camera and as you pan, the light's going to change, right? So the angle of light's going to change, or let's say a cloud was moving by during my pan now I've got a subject that's walking from full sun to broken shade to deep shade. Well, I need the whole sequence. I don't have the luxury of shoot, setting exposure for full sun, shooting a picture, wait till the animal gets in broken shade and shoot another, change the exposure and shoot another one. I'm responsible for constantly and smoothly adjusting the exposure as that animal moves. At the same time, keeping a composition, at the same time, manually focusing. So you've got lots of things you're responsible for as you go. And so, you know, and little things like having to think in advance. Okay, this elk is over here on my left. He's going, he might go over here to this deep shade, but I've got a neutral density plate in front of my lens. And how, you know, so you have to quickly think where he ends up am I going to end up not be able to get in the shot because I got too many neutral density plates in, in, you know, in front of my lens or, you know, what do I need? So you have to think through exposures in advance. And so that's where the learning curve comes in is trying to really multitask, I guess, for the lack of better words. That's impressive. Makes sense though. I mean, there, there are all those elements and, and more so with video. So yeah, Sounds almost daunting, and I and I don't want to I want to don't want to finish on that note because I no I, found I don't what, at all I don't want you to be daunted no no <laughs> but I I want to thank you because it's such a wonderful world it's been so informative and like I you know there are so many ways to capture video that's engaging nowadays and I just personally wanted to know out of curiosity as a professional what the best avenue could be. 2019 to go forward to dabble in video you know i had hoped that it was as simple as the 705 but obviously not for all applications but i am going to dabble away in video between the smartphones these gimbals the dslrs and then personally you know i'll just i'll have to keep assessing where i want to go with it you know and right. what the applications are and honestly this podcast and our team whether it's the four of us, whether it's Missy, our producer, whether it's the editors that we have, like Tyler on the vlogs, working in the background, helping us out. I mean, I'm excited about where this is going and the video content that I personally am looking forward to capturing more of will funnel into this production, not necessarily something 
for the big screen cinema. It's, I want to take our listeners and our followers along in our adventures to show them how to do it so they can ex feel like they're experiencing it and learning from it and why we are so passionate about it, what moves us in this way. So See, we will be able to ca capture video in all different formats for that application. And I yes. think with that being said, that 705 is perfect. For, for this story? For what you're trying to do. But, you know, for what you yeah. just said, right. it, it's actually the best camera there, right? Because it's fast. You're going to mm -hmm. capture everything. It doesn't need to be cinematic. We're trying to teach or we're trying to inspire or we're trying to do something that is not necessarily cinematic related. And the cool thing is we've got a team, right? So if we're all mm -hmm. shooting something, you right. guys are grabbing steals, we're grabbing video, we're getting a little bit of everything, and we can everybody's come to the table with something a little bit different. So it. And even with the 705, give me, give me a little comfort blanket here. Even if I get some great footage on the 705, it would, could be applicable for cinema. For broadcast? For a yes. small, for broadcast, it would just be a smaller percentage of that show. You wouldn't have right. the confidence unless like you're saying, like I know the 305, uh, I, I had heard anyway, hearsay but i think it's accurate that the xf305 the old school hd that i have was the camera that they used for the deadliest catch reality show yeah it was well they, they used several they used several different um cameras but that was definitely one of them yes so but i mean it's changed since then that was years ago yeah so um but for the type of story that i tell and the type of running gunning i like to do as far as the wildlife and capturing that behavior, I mean, fluidity is so important with wildlife photography. When you have the luxury and, and you both have the patience and you get lucky with the setup, with the big tripods, you get in the right situation. But there, obviously there are those situations that won't permit that. There isn't the time, you know, that the 705 could be more applicable with that autofocus, with that zoom. And just not that I'm but trying to sell myself on it. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely love some of its features. The ideal would be have a camera that was that compact, that weatherproof, that mobile, that would hit all these target audiences. And that's obviously not available right now. But these things keep changing, right? The technology keeps advancing and, and at a crazy rate. And, you know, just a recent podcast, we were talking about the mirrorless cameras and how exciting those are. And I've been reflecting on that. I'm still excited about the potential of those mirrorless cameras. But right now, on this day, this week, this month, do I need that for what I'm doing? Does it change the, you know, the my success ratio? I'm not sure it does. So I'm, I'm still wavering on that. But I'm watching all this technology and there will be an irresistible turning point with the mirrorless cameras or with some of this video equipment where a new model will come out and it'll just have that much more of an appeal and a broader application that I'll have no, no choice. But I, the, even the snowshoe hair stuff I did earlier this uh, autumn in Alaska on the 850 and not knowing to adjust the settings for the shallower depth of field even, I was so impressed with how crisp that footage was. So anyway. Well, that's I, why I, I think a DSLR is a good choice too because yeah. not all the time do you have to change the settings because if you're using a long lens you're going to get that compression and that drop off in the depth of field even without trying to get that cinematic film right. look by by cutting your shutter speed down to be double your your frame rate so cool all right well thank you guys i have found this really informative i don't know what direction to go in 
Well, but when Ron was here, lot. I've learned a lot today. I yeah. have. <laughs> Good. Ron was asking me a lot of these questions while he was sitting here too. He's like, so he showed me, didn't Doug, uh, Red just came out with a new, what new is it? New dragon. A new dragon. Yeah. It's like a 5.5 yeah. K. Dragon S 5.5. Yep. G- Dragon Gemini, thank you. No, it's even another one, a different one. It's besides that. Okay. And he, and he showed it, me it, the it, ad, and he's like, should I get this? And I'm like, I don't know. It's that whole conversation we just had. It's like, golly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, yeah, it's you should get that, about. and you should get a Phantom, and you should also get a, <laughs> right. an AK Dragon, and then you should probably get a C100 and a C300. And, and, then, and at least uh, at least six um, uh, mini mag cards to go at twenty eight hundred dollars a pop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So for so, those, list- yeah. <laughs> for those for those listeners that that have heard all this, you can also. I mean, YouTube is an endless resource to see comparisons. Obviously, measure what you're listening to, right? It's somebody's opinion, but there, you can learn a lot there too. But I have definitely learned a lot from you both today, and on the videography side, and. I'll admit I'm still a little dazed and confused by it all, but it's 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 all about pocket and application, right? How much one wants to spend and what the end application is. And I think for most of the audience, most of our our friends and our followers on this podcast, you know, it's about internet application, right? So if it's for that, all of these devices, all these recorders will work. But it's just as far as as a professional, what the options are right now, because it's changing so quickly. And there are, as you both have pointed out, so many cameras out there that will do so much. Where do you go? I mean, there's and the expense of it. So I want to uh, thank you both for doing that and remind our listeners that you can find us on so many platforms, not just our audio podcast platforms. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on YouTube. We have our own channel there. You can find us on Instagram and the mother network of it all is our website at wildandexposed.com. So until next time, you've been listening to wild and exposed podcast. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>